enough years ago now that time has kind of deadened some of the sharper pangs of this memory, I was cutting my teeth as a comedian, magician, and juggler. And while I would go on to do a one-man show as the rubber chicken guy, I initially had a partner. Troy and I worked hard to string together a 45-minute show we were proud of, despite this constant nagging feeling that we really had no idea what we were doing. We were learning our craft as both jugglers and entertainers, just two kids with a crazy dream, and we would take any gig we were given, hoping that every exposure to a crowd would smooth off some of the rough edges. It was because of that desire to take any gig we were offered that we found ourselves behind the boards at an ice rink, preparing to do a short show for 15 minutes between the first and second periods of a hockey game. Since we'd be in the middle of a very large, very non-flammable ice rink, we had decided that it was the perfect time to do a show with fire, swapping out our usual juggling clubs and machetes for antics involving flaming torches. What could possibly go wrong, I thought. Ignore for a moment the very obvious foreshadowing in what I just said. There is another piece of information you need in order to guess where this is all heading, and to answer the question you might already be asking yourself. What's this got to do with you and your creative life? I'm David Dusheman, and this is episode 66 of A Beautiful Anarchy. Let's talk about it. The gig I'm about to describe had come up rather suddenly, and I had given the guy who booked us one condition, since, you know, we weren't getting paid, and since the rider on my contract didn't yet specify anything so fancy as a bowl of green M&Ms in my change room, or, well, for that matter, a change room, (laughs) I had asked for only one simple thing. I need a coffee can or something similar, I had said. I need it to refuel my torches, I explained and he promised he would come through. What he handed me on arrival at the rink, and only a few minutes before we were told we'd be going on early, was a styrofoam coffee cup. There are so many ways in which a metal coffee can is not the same as a styrofoam coffee cup. Capacity is one. Color is another, I suppose, though it's of much less importance to what was about to happen than, oh, say, the difference in how those two receptacles might or might not resist heat or flame. Try not to get ahead of me here, but it's hard not to see, especially in hindsight, how putting hot torches into a small, slowly melting styrofoam cup filled with kerosene might seem like a bad idea. As our short show went on, each time I put a torch into the cup, it seemed to lose just a little bit more of its will to live, slowly melting into itself, until one of the torches, which the footage of the performance showed so much more clearly than I could see at the time, went into the cup with a lick of flame still on it. The cup of fuel caught fire, and me being more fool than firefighter, Well, I stepped on the cup, sending flames across the ice and igniting, however briefly, both of my shoes. I maintain to this day that the situation was fully under control. Or it was until the hockey players decided to save the day, jumping the boards and skating out to extinguish the flames. There's a way of stopping dramatically in hockey skates that sends out a spray of ice, and I suspect these guys were just so excited to finally find a real-world application for this hard-earned skill that they forgot whatever lessons they might at some point have learned about putting out fuel fires with water, the first of which is 
don't do it. There was so little fuel left in that cup that had these guys refrained from playing the hero, we might have salvaged the whole thing, might just have convinced everyone that it was all part of the act. It was so close to resolving itself that I think had it all ended there, I might have been able to put the whole thing behind me. But there's, there's always that one guy that's got to wreck it for everyone else, isn't there? In this case, it was the guy who just couldn't let that last lick of fire die out on its own. Just had to reach for the nearest water bottle and douse the flames. Except it wasn't a water bottle. And the leader of kerosene, he poured from that bottle onto the dying flame, so small you could barely see it. Well, I think it surprised him as much as his heroic stupidity had surprised me. He dropped the fuel bottle into the resulting conflagration and skated back behind the boards. They all did. Just skated off, leaving Troy and me standing in the middle of the rink beside a fire that would have done me proud on a Friday night under a starry sky with a bag of marshmallows, rather than center stage with my best friend in an ice rink under the stunned gaze of 300 hockey fans. I remember throwing my hands in the air in resignation, walking off the cold ice and into the hot anger of the rink manager, and later back to my dorm, so nauseated by the shame and the fear that I would never perform again. I locked my juggling stuff away for a while, hidden in a box out of sight, along with that melted plastic fuel bottle, which I later threw out and now wish so much that I had kept as a trophy of one of the hardest moments I ever faced in front of a crowd. A reminder that things often go sideways. They go wrong in ways that are unexpected and painful. And if we are wise, we won't let them sideline us for long. Though I think it's helpful to remember that it's not usually these events that sideline us, but how we choose to react to them. Had I never gone back to comedy, which was a possibility I considered long and hard, I couldn't have blamed the fiasco at the hockey rink for what would never have been. The fault would lie in my response and the choice to choose surrender over resilience. I mostly laugh about the incident at the rink now. It's much easier to do that almost 30 years later when I'm looking backwards, and it's only one memory among many in a successful career with only a handful of truly disastrous performances. I had another one in which I needed a volunteer from the audience to just cut a piece of rope with a pair of scissors. And in her enthusiasm, she cut deeply into my fingers. And I stood there trying to catch the pooling blood in my hand while asking the audience for a bandage. And so convinced was the audience that this was all just part of the act that they just sat there laughing and applauding and waiting to see what the crazy guy would do next. I laugh about that one too, though at the time, I wasn't so sure I ever wanted to get back on stage. Other things are harder to move on from, less pregnant with the possibility that, you know, one day we're going to laugh about this. There are moments in life when we falter, either from a misstep of our own or because somewhere deep under our feet, the ground shifts and our steps fail us. I'm not sure why this particular sermon feels like the right one at this moment. It could be all the time I've spent looking back recently, as I always do at this time of year, just grateful to be alive after an accident 10 years ago that should have killed or at least paralyzed me. It could be the long year we've all had and continue to have, and from which it might take many of us years more to recover. It's probably also the many emails I've been getting lately expressing the fear that some vital part of us, some crucial piece has snapped or just worn out or gone missing during this pandemic. And I've heard in some of these emails 
the unmistakable sound that hope makes when it struggles for breath. When I had my accident in Italy in 2011, after a series of questionable decisions, I fell from a 30-foot wall, crumpling into a ball on the concrete below. Two hours later, I was lying in a hospital bed in Pisa, all my clothes cut from my body except for my blundstone boots, which for reasons I still struggle to understand, they chose not to cut off but to pull from my shattered feet while I howled at them and felt the tears pooling in my ears. I was cathetered and x-rayed, my broken pelvis stabilized and casts put on both feet and also on one of my hands, before the doctor finally told me what was going on. Well, he said, you have broken both feet very badly. You will never walk the same again and will always walk with a limp. But, he said, as though this were a consolation prize, you will limp with both feet, so it won't look like a limp. Ten years later, I don't walk the same And I do limp, some days much worse than others. And he was right. It doesn't always look like a limp. I'm not sure what it does look like. A strut? uh, A bit of a screwed up saunter, perhaps? Maybe a sachet with a side of, what the hell happened to you? Why am I telling you all this? Well, I think what I'm fumbling around trying to say is that things change. And often very quickly. Life is a string of constant changes, and once in a while, those changes hit us from behind with such force it knocks us clear out of our shoes and leaves us wondering what the hell just happened. And it's natural to lick our wounds and look for someone to blame or just to give up. And I thought perhaps it might help to be reminded that these exact moments are our biggest opportunity for creativity and in which our creativity is never more needed More than just the way that we make our art, creativity teaches us to bounce when we hit the pavement. It is in learning to be creative that we learn to find possibility and hope where they are not immediately obvious. It is in our creativity that we find resilience. And it is here we learn to have courage in the face of change and uncertainty and here where we learn to bounce. And though we rarely bounce back, to where we were so much as we bounce forward or sideways into something new, we do bounce. Or we can. I think bouncing, like our everyday efforts at creativity, requires that we surrender some of our rigidity. It requires adaptability, maybe a certain elasticity, if not in our bodies, then certainly in our thinking. It requires a willingness to embrace change and adapt to what is, rather than wishing for what was, and to make something of it. I think that's what it means to be creative, to make something of it. There is something fundamentally redemptive about creativity, making something great of something that is painful and difficult, choosing to make something beautiful from pieces that on their own might be ugly, making meaning from that which feels on its own meaningless, These are responses that we choose in order to change what is dark into what is light. The human race may be many things, but unable to adapt, we are not. We are or can be profoundly resilient. Resilience is not denial. It is not emerging unscathed. Nor is it simply bouncing back. Resilience is bouncing higher, further, and often with a wildly different trajectory than we could ever have planned. It's growth. It's not optimism, wishful thinking, or the naive belief that everything's going to be okay. 
but the belief that we can make something meaningful and even beautiful of it, no matter how meaningless and ugly the pieces we are left with, when it all does go wrong. To make something of it is our fundamental creative capacity, a redemptive impulse in which we find our resilience and from which, with raw materials that are hard, painful, and truly ugly, we might find the courage to make something beautiful. Thank you so much for listening. I'm honored to be a part of your creative life, however small that part might be. If this podcast makes a difference to you, I would be so grateful if you gave it a review on your podcast app, if it allows you to do so, or to share it with those you think might find some encouragement in it. And if you're not already receiving it, I'd love to send you On The Make, which is like an emailed version of this podcast that I send out on the one week in four that this podcast takes a break. Just go to startuglybook.com, scroll to the bottom, and tell me where to send it. Thanks again for being part of this. We'll talk soon. Until then, go make something beautiful.